if we can attune ourselves to the self-referential homeodynamic processes that exist writ large beyond the ones that are happening inside our body, we will find that our actions and our will will flow more easily. That same process happens throughout our life in everything we choose to do. So if we could open ourselves up to regulatory forces from the world outside us, which I contend are encoded in the chemistry that plants and mushrooms deliver to us on a daily basis if we choose to eat them, then the idea is that we will flow with the will of the ecology or the will of the universe more closely. And as a result, our actions will be more effortless. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. If you are not yet familiar with the work of Guido Massé, hopefully this interview will serve as a worthy introduction to this man's genius and contribution to the world of herbalism. For two hours nonstop, Guido eloquently delivers plant lore and science, useful insights into myriad systems and processes, and priceless life wisdom. Growing up in the Italian Alps, the world of herbal medicine was inculcated in Guido by plant and mushroom foraging treks with his father and family. Eventually settling in Vermont, he was inspired by renowned herbalists such as Rosemary Gladstar and Seven Song. Today, Guido is the chief herbalist at Urban Moonshine, which specializes in liquid herbal extracts with a focus on digestive bitters, herbal tonics, and everyday health remedies. Through the Urban Moonshine Herb School, he provides online herbal education. Guido is also author of The Wild Medicine Solution, an incredible book filled with folklore, science, recipes, and practical uses of bitter, aromatic, and tonic herbs. Just like the swift runner that Guido is, he covers so much ground in this episode, including his observations with running and homeodynamics, folklore and mythology, and fairy tales related to herbal medicine, integrative health in Africa and Maasai medicine, cultural influences, writing, bitters, tonics, and aromatics, and consciousness. Guido is a deeply engaging speaker with a profound passion for plants and biology in general, and he effortlessly weaves tales of science and myth into a profoundly nourishing and educational conversation. It was my absolute honor to sit in his presence for this worthy discussion, and it brings me great pleasure to be able to offer it to you. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Guido Messe. Guido, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Todd, thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you for agreeing to do this. I think we have a lot in common and a lot of great things to talk about. And I'm very happy to be able to bring you to our audience of, of herbalists and, and students. Yeah, it's really amazing for me just having followed the work that comes out of Pacific Rim, particularly in the field of herbal medicine. Um, some amazing folks on faculty, some amazing students that have gone through Pacific Rim over the years. Um, it's been always my pleasure to interact with members of your community. So um, I'm grateful to be here. Oh, good. I appreciate that. Thank you. Let's start with a mutual love of ours, which is running. Can you tell me a bit about your running roots? Well, um, when I was a kid, I remember pushing myself just for no reason other than the feeling of 
running and cardiovascular intensity, just being something I enjoyed experiencing. And then for a long time, you know, as I became a teenager and went through high school and all of that, um, running wasn't a part of my life in the same way. I certainly played soccer and other things where running is useful, um, but I think my, my mind was in different places. And then um, starting sort of in my late 20s, I got this sort of urge to move a little more quickly every once in a while, particularly when I was, you know, on walks in the woods or um, on a trail. And I'd just pick up the pace for a little bit. And after a while really came to remember how much I enjoyed the feeling of heart racing, swift movement through the forest, sort of the air and the cool air of the morning on my face, and sort of that experiential quality, plus the ability to set a goal, push myself to meet that goal, um, and, and repeat that whole process. It also is a really amazing place for me to play out some of the learning about human physiology, particularly about homeodynamic balancing processes that the human body um, engages in to experience a sort of pure stress reaction and sympathetic response. So a lot of what I was learning about physiology um, and also about challenge and striving and, and improving all dovetailed with this feeling of enjoyment, particularly when you're outside and completely made me hooked. So I really just started, you know, with 20, 30 minute runs out in the woods um, and my trail runs got longer and longer and longer. You know, I remember huffing and puffing the first time, um, but just ranged further and eventually got it in my head that something like a marathon would be a fun goal to try. Um, got into the physiology of that, got into the science of sort of training arcs and how important it is to challenge the we might call yang side of the body, but also deeply engage with the yin side, the sort of rest, repair, and digest process, right? Which if you ignore it, you can't run well, especially when you're trying for a longer goal like a marathon. And then um, being able to sort of run longer distances like that, um, I found myself getting more and more into meditative spaces that helped me transcend the day-to-day -day in this incredibly powerful way and bring back ideas that informed my clinical practice, that informed my writing, that informed my relationships with my friends and my family. So putting this all together, I feel like running is like a microcosm of the human experience almost, um, a microcosm of the human physiology, a great metaphor for the struggles that we all deal with in life. Um, and for me, just a pure expression of enjoyment of being outside and in nature and in the forest. So what keeps me coming back is that I get to go outside every day um, because of running, you know, regardless of the weather, regardless of the conditions. Um, and the last thing I want to say that I always try to remember is, you know, poking fun at ourselves a little bit. It, it's really funny that I have to engage in purposeful exercise to maintain my physical fitness and my cardiovascular health. Um, working with friends and folks, for example, in, in Tanzania, the level of exercise that these folks go through every single day, just as part of heating their homes and um, getting food for their family is exceeds any kind of marathon training work that I've ever done. So it always is a little funny to me um, to see how in the Western world, we engage in these complex training regimes 
for the goal of physical activity, um, where the human experience for millennia before now has been full of physical activity all the time. So running is a, a decent substitute and fulfills a lot of those areas that are important to me. But um, ultimately, it's, it's an expression of something that is very human, which is uh, moving around every day, moving our bodies, engaging our hearts, and engaging with the natural world. Well, you've piqued my curiosity in a number of ways with that, in particular with Tanzania. I'll ask you about that in a few minutes. Before we go there, can you talk more about your experiments with homeodynamics? Yeah. I mean, so when we're talking about any living system, really, um, whether it's a human or a bacterium, um, an ecology, there, even the planet, there are processes whereby that system sort of takes a look at itself um, and how all of its processes are operating and running and tweaks and adjusts different parameters in order to maintain a sort of um, relatively stable internal operating environment. And we talk about homeodynamic instead of homeostatic, which is I think the more classical term, just because we're really not static, you know, we're like tightrope walkers kind of oscillating around these set points, but never really stuck anywhere, we hope. And in the context of running, what you find is that your body's ability, or at least my experience has been, um, that my body's ability to adapt to novel ranges, like running up a mountain versus running on a flat terrain, running for longer distances versus shorter distances at higher speeds instead of lower speeds, feeds into this process, which sort of has its own conscious systemic quality, which is the process of training. And the process of training can lead to improvement, but only if we take time to sort of reflect and engage in those homeodynamic processes, which means checking to see um, how, for example, integrative measurements of internal homo homeodynamic balance, like heart rate variability, how are those doing over the course of your training arc? Um, is your heart rate variability decreasing? Maybe it's time to spend a little more time in rest and digest rather than in that running fight or flight mode. Um, those types of attentions to the self-regulating signals that our body gives us and that we're not always consciously aware of have definitely improved my running training, but of course they underlie our ability to improve health and wellness overall, not just for ourselves, but for our families, um, for our communities, for the ecology um, and beyond. So I think that attention to homeodynamism can yield incredible results across the board anytime you're engaging in a process, which really means almost any time at all. It's a question of identifying what the pieces of that process are, how they relate to each other and how they refer back to each other. And working with running or working with plants, you kind of come to similar conclusions, which are, we need time to have expansion and we need time to have contraction. And we need time for pushing and stimulating and time for nourishing. And of course, anyone who's played with medicinal plants knows that we've got plants that support sort of outward expansive processes and, and plants that conversely support um, rest and digest and nourish processes. And so I guess those have been my experiments in homeodynamism, what plants can help support the normal trends that are occurring in myself as a, a runner undergoing training or in folks I might work with who are working with a health concern, um, rather than trying and, and tackle the health concern 
all by itself head on, I often try and, and kind of look at what the processes of adjustment and self-regulation inside that person might be, inside that person's immediate community and ecology, and, and try to support the homeodynamic regulatory process rather than just attack the problem directly. Um, it's, it's been helpful, not just in running, but I think also in herbal practice. And I think there's some wisdom to that, which of course is nothing new. You speak to any sort of holders of indigenous knowledge or holders of herbal tradition and, and they'll likely tell you the very same thing. So I'm not speaking about anything too groundbreaking or revolutionary here. Now you spoke of heart rate variability and other measures. Do you use devices to measure things of that nature, physiological cues, or is it more intuitive for you? Um, I'd say it's a little of both, but just I must confess on the outset that I think of myself as sort of an optimistic futurist. So I'm very into all the stuff that human beings have come up with, including these machines that let us speak to each other across long distances in virtually real time, and also the sort of line or blending of, of human and machine that has been happening over you know the last century. There's serious ethical considerations that pertain to this field, which is basically a new field. Um, but it makes me excited to think about things like interplanetary travel or um, the ability to visualize our thoughts on a computer screen, for instance some really new, exciting, cutting-edge stuff that scientists are working on. So long story short, I do like using devices to track some physiologic parameters like heart rate variability in myself and sometimes in the clients um, with whom I work. And you have to take all of that with a serious grain of salt or better said, with lots of medicinal plants. We definitely can move outward into this new technology and we can do it effectively. But if we're not grounded in the chemistry that supports the wetware that evolved from millions of years and beyond of human evolution, we're gonna to be totally untethered and ungrounded in our relationship with technology. And a lot of those ethical issues that come from the human machine interface will rear their heads and in very ugly ways, I think. But I guess I have great faith and that's the optimistic part of the optimistic futurist that if we stay grounded in the roots that were literally our parents, you know, the, the plant biology, the fungal biology in which we evolved, we'll be able to navigate the pitfalls of human technological innovation with a lot more grace. I'm, I'm very curious about the plants and how you're using them to forerunning. Are you using them as performance enhancement to recover? What specific ways are you using them? Well, a little of both. I mean, there's there are some amazing plants that you can take in the moment. And I have noticed, clinical researchers have noticed, and folks to whom I've recommended these plants have also noticed sort of a, a short-term performance boost from them. These include, for example, um, roots like the root of Rhodiola rosea, um, also known as rose root or arctic root, um, which does definitely give an immediate boost we think in part because of its adaptogenic activity and its ability to modulate stress hormones and sort of preserve our, um, particularly our, our glycogen metabolism um, for later stages of the race when you really want that sugar to be able to help those fatigued muscles finish. Um, 
we have to be really careful with herbs like rhodiola who you know are definitely endangered in their native ranges and where organic cultivation is not really well developed or established yet um so while there are and you know caffeine certainly falls right in there you know there's definitely some issues around circulation for long-term endurance athletes with caffeine but for short-term physical boost you know coffee and, and black tea they work really well especially when you use them only once in a while but you know, while there are herbs that can help with a range of issues head on, like I want more oomph in my run, I'm going to take some rhodiola. As I've worked through herbal practice over the years, I'm coming more and more to rely on, on tonification and on sort of gentle, more habitual use of plants rather than this mentality, which I personally feel is, is somewhat derived from the drug treatment, disease treatment mentality that I grew up with, right? You wait for a problem, then you throw something at it and the problem goes away. With herbal medicine, it's a lot more like gardening and, and that means tonification and it means a little bit of a longer term approach. So with running and, and also with different types of training, particularly endurance training, you know, having worked with rowers, um, cyclists, um, triathletes and swimmers, a lot of the same stuff comes into play. And I summarize it a little bit like this, you know, um, when running, we often work on training both our aerobic system, um, which relies on oxygen-based respiration um, and definitely helps us go for the long haul, um, but also our anaerobic system. And that's where we'll do things like sprints or high intensity interval training, for instance, um, that trains our fast twitch muscle fibers and trains our anaerobic and lactate thresholds to be able to power through intense discomfort with high rates of output, but not necessarily for a very long period of time. And what I found is that it, it makes sense to do those two things kind of separately and to go in cycles where you're building your aerobic capacity um, then, then take a little pause and, and do maybe four to six weeks where you're building your anaerobic capacity. And you can time those so that you have ideally peak performance within the few days before a race or a competitive event, let's say. Using herbs in this context, again, it helps to think about some of the traditional energetic ideas that herbalists and people who work with traditional healing modalities have brought out. Um, yang as sort of fire and hot and active and yin as sort of water and receptive um, and restorative are useful sort of approximations and summaries for this. So if you think of speed and anaerobic training as the tool of fire, it almost feels like fire when your muscles are burning after an intense set of intervals. Um, you can think of endurance as yin and as the tool of water. It also, you know, breaks you down, but it's more like ocean waves eroding on a rock coast, like long periods of time, right? And there's different herbs that support the um, high intensity performance arc, for example, when you're doing um, anaerobic training, and compared to herbs that support um, you during these sort of endurance anaerobic capacity training. And in the former, when you're engaging with high in intensity intervals, for instance, um, I've often found that warming, fiery, spicy herbs really help. These include very warm herbs like cayenne, for example, um, but also um, less intense ones like ginger and certainly um, even turmeric. 
these are fiery in their quality, but they also um, really support circulation and oxygenation to those crucially exercising muscles. So you can take those during that time um, for support to help you perform at your peak. In the endurance training phase of things, you often actually find watery or demulcent, um, what herbalists might call yin tonic herbs, being much more supportive than those spicy hot ones that you might have used during your anaerobic training phase. It includes food-like herbs like oatmeal, for instance, and just like putting all that slimy oatmeal into your body, but also um, what we might call connective tissue tonics like um, Solomon seal, for instance. Um, people will work with a marshmallow root even during these times, um, or small amounts of herbs like licorice. So these are the supportive things. So I'll switch from like hot spicy stuff during anaerobic training to like lots of oatmeal and cooling demulcents and connective tissue tonics during endurance training phases. Then injuries come up during both of those situations, right? Um, the injuries that tend to happen during the fire training are the ones that actually injure the yin, believe it or not. So this is the places where, you know, you'll um, strain your IT band or you may get Achilles tendonitis from frequent full power intensity um, of the running. And so this is where you're gonna come back to um, these more watery herbs to again, counteract the injury that's induced by fire. So Solomon seal comes out again and um, you take a little break and you, and you focus on those yin-like um, cooling herbs. Conversely, when you're in um, the aerobic endurance training and you're doing, you know, 20, 25 mile runs um, once a week and you're building 70, 80, 90 miles during the course of the week, that stuff wears you down no matter how much oatmeal you eat. So this is where adaptogens become really important and where we turn to um, herbs like Siberian ginseng, um, also American ginseng if you have the luxury of some certified organic um, root that's available, certainly ashwagandha, and instead of oatmeal, things like milky oat fresh tincture lots of good fats and all of those essential nutrients um, that are so important. So that's what keeps your spirit from getting worn down. And working with runners who are, are trying to train for ultra races, like 50 or 100 mile races, the volume and the fatigue that comes from that volume often will make their spirit feel depressed or unengaged, and they won't find enjoyment in life in quite the same way anymore. These adaptogens can really help prevent that um, and help their spirit stay strong for the, for the grind, really, that long-term endurance training is. So there's some spot herbs that you can use here or there for injury support, um, but that's really sort of the tonic approach. Um, in a nutshell, I guess, and where I would start whenever anyone's talking to me about um, how they could use herbs to support an exercise training program. The last piece is the cycle is really important, right? You can't do anaerobic training all the time and expect to continue improving. You really have to alternate and fluctuate. Very thorough. I love that. Thank you. And I love the metaphors, especially with the yin and the yang and the, the fire and the water to their anaerobic and aerobic training. Where did your pa passion and love for herbs come from? Yes, well, I um, was a really lucky kid. I grew up in the Alps and with my dad and my grandma, my aunts and uncles, we literally foraged for mushrooms, bilberries and elderflowers and gentian roots. And as a kid, I, you know, I had mixed feelings about this. I definitely enjoyed it once I was out there. 
I didn't like getting up at five in the morning to traipse <laughs> up a mountain like and have to carry all the stuff. But anyway, it took me a while. Um, my mom's from Kansas City and my dad is from the Alps. They met there and they still go back and forth. They're both in Kansas right now. Um, but when I moved to Kansas City for the purpose of going to high school um, and also to take care, help take help my mom take care of her folks, her parents, my grandparents, it took me a while to realize that I missed all of this stuff. And this was also coming at, you know, a time of, I would say, great intellectual curiosity. This is something many folks experience in their late teens and early 20s. I found myself pulled by two main threads. One was mythology and folklore and fairy tale and sort of the, the great myths of the world and also specific folk tales and fairy tales and the magic that they hold, um, which by the way, often include a lot of plants. The other side was biochemistry and organic chemistry and sort of chemistry of life. I was getting very, very interested in this um, and was lucky enough to take you know, some, some biochem courses while I was in high school and, and begin to explore what at the time I was thinking of as like the machinery of life. And clearly machine is a very bad analogy. But um, as a, you know, 18 year old feeling pulled in what looked like two diametrically opposite directions and at an institution that was not going to let me double major in fairy tales and biochemistry, <laughs> I was able to, I can't even remember exactly how this happened, but almost like a, a little nagging feeling that then became stronger and stronger, the connection to foraging and things like the elder mother, Frau Holle, and, and the fairy tales associated with her from my childhood, and the cup of tea, and the chemistry in that cup of tea, all kind of came together for me in sort of an aha moment where I said, well, geez, herbal medicine is both of these things. And it looks at the world through both biochemistry and through mythology and through the analogy of, of fairy tale. And in many cases, fairy tale explains the way plants work in people better than our current biochemical understanding does. And that's when I was hooked. I decided to leave school and talk to plant people wherever I could find them, confident that I could learn the biochem on my own and um, that it really was the lived experience of plant people in connection with the earth and in connection with nature that was going to be the instruction that I wasn't going to be able to find anywhere else. That was the teaching that I really needed. So sort of vagabonding around for two, three years around the United States, um, meeting a lot of cool plant people along the way, I finally um, settled back in Vermont with the woman who is now my wife back in 1996. And we started growing medicinal plants. And from there, um, you know, I worked with a lot of amazing folks here in the Vermont community. Um, my wife ended up going to medical school and is now a physician. And yeah, I've not looked back. What do you attribute your interest, the roots of your interest in mythology and folklore to? That's a good question. I can sort of rationalize all of that now and talk about how mythology sort of encapsulates the relational quality of the world. And you can see this homeodynamism at work in fairy tale um, that it expresses some of the key feedback processes 
for our culture where we sort of introspect as a culture, right? And our collective experience from a Jungian perspective or however you wanna talk about it is stored in there. But at the time, I think I just loved the magic of it and this idea that there was an unseen world, that there was something hidden that you could see glimpses of once in a while. And I wanted more of that. I wanted in on that. I wanted to be a part of it. And, you know, the beauty of it is, is that I, I am and we all are and we all get to be a part of it every day, um, even though we might not fully be cognizant of it. So I think it was just the magic and the hidden world quality that excited me. And, and in Italy, fairy tales are abundant and ubiquitous, you know, growing up and in books and the land has had people on it in an incredibly dense way for a very long time. Not that that hasn't been the case in this hemisphere too, maybe a little less dense, right? Um, but around every corner, there's a little shrine and there's a story and almost every big tree in the forest, there's a fairy. And if you walk with the right person, they'll tell you about it. So it was everywhere. I think I resonated with the magic of fairy tale and this sort of childlike transportation to a world where incredible things are possible. And I guess I'm lucky to say, or to feel that that hasn't left me. And in large part, it's because of the plants and the garden and the forest that I still get to walk with every day. What do you remember most about those herbal gathering trips with your dad and family? Mostly be my dad. And sometimes, you know, my, his sister um, or sisters would come. Sometimes Nonna Dina, my grandmother, would actually come too. But most of the time she'd get up at the crack of dawn and just cook all day, right? Especially when we were all there and there was going to be like, you know, 20 people at the dinner table that night. Many, many cousins, um, a good Roman Catholic family. But what I remember most other than those really early mornings and the feeling of the forest, you know, at dawn and it's like dripping and moist. And I remember the smell of the forest floor. Um, I remember the excitement of discovery. And this is particularly around foraging and particularly around chanterelles, which were one of the first mushrooms because they're so obvious and, and bright that I recognized as a kid. And, and being able to come around a corner and see a patch of chanterelles, like. I remember that in an incredible, incredibly vivid way, um, both because it would get a lot of reward points from members of my family, right? So there's lots of praise when you find the good patch of chanterelles, but also just this, I don't know, I think it's something that as wild harvesting herbalists, maybe we all share a little bit. It's this feeling of seeing a really good friend that you haven't seen for a really good, really long time. And also this idea of being able to sort of tend um, to the wild population and, and be in relationship with them and, and not think of those mushrooms or those plants as a resource to exploit, but more as a, a buddy that's doing a little bit of sharing. But I remember that feeling of discovery really clearly. I remember the moist mornings and the smell of the forest floor. Um, I remember breaking out of the forest to above treeline to the high meadows. And there you would see little springs that had been funneled into half hollowed out logs where animals that were grazing, all the farmers would bring their cattle up to the above tree line um, for the summer to graze on the sweet grass. So they drink from these troughs. I'd splash this water. I remember the ice cold water feeling. There were these flowers amongst the arnica that smelled like chocolate. They're like brownish purple and has this amazing chocolate smell that I still recall to this day. And I remember my dad telling me, there they are. 
but you can't harvest them. They're endangered. I was like, what do you mean endangered? I remember this conversation really vividly. And he explained that whole thing to me. And that was a revelation for me as a kid who's used to just picking everything they want all the time. Um, and I also really remember one day, you know, as a kid, mostly my job was to carry the basket and, you know, let the adults lead the way. But I remember the day my dad said, hey, you know, why don't you decide where we're going this morning? I have a feeling that you might, you know, have a good sense about the mushrooms today or something along those lines. But I really remember that. And it's kind of crazy that it still sticks with me, but um, I felt this really big sense of pride with my dad telling me, hey, you can go ahead and lead, you know, half a dozen of us into the woods to find the good spot for the mushrooms um, at this point. I felt like I must've done something right or I must have crossed some kind of threshold. I don't know that I would really label it an initiatory experience, but it had that kind of flavor. And I remember it really well to this day. And what was your dad's experience or background with plant foraging? Was it just a, a passion or was it deeper you than know, that? You know, it's really cultural. Um, I would say that most people in this sort of central part of the Alps, which I got to spend a lot of time in as a kid, have some degree of foraging experience, if only mushrooms. There's no one there who doesn't know something about edible mushrooms. More folks know about plants. Um, almost everyone knows about common plants like dandelion um, and elderflower. And elderflower tisane is really common. Um, but I don't think my dad was in any way special. I think he was just a regular guy and in the summer, what do you do? You go hiking. And if you're hiking, you bring a basket because there's all sorts of stuff. What are you going to come home empty handed? The other part is that in pharmacies in Italy, and, and this is true to this day, you have herbal remedies right alongside all of the over-the-counter drugs and prescription medicines. So it, it, it's a lot more normalized. Um, it's not as freaky or scary to say like, wait, what, you got that out of the woods and now you're going to eat it? So I don't think it was really anything too special for a kid growing up um, in the northern part of Italy at that time, especially in the Alps, to have these experiences. I began to realize how personally special it was for me when I moved back to Kansas City and that was gone. And we had great cars, but no one would go out for hikes. And was there anyone in your family who would tell you about the fairies that lived in the great trees? Oh yeah. I mean, we would, we would tell fairy tales. I mean, fairy stories happened before bed. Um, folks would like, we'd come, we'd come by a larch tree and there's a lot of deciduous larch in and amongst the spruce, um, especially on the lower elevations. Um, and they turn golden yellow in like, kind of like rivers going down the mountainside. It reminds me a little of what aspens look like. Um, out west here in the United States or in this hemisphere. But we'd like pass a larch and, you know, it usually wasn't my dad. I don't know why that was, but maybe my Aunt Rita would say something like, hey, you know the story of um, how like the the fairy princess wanted to marry this knight and, and they really had to get a, a maypole or like a pole to like, you know, dance around for the wedding and, and they decided to get a larch. And, and the story goes on and it talks about how um, sort of the, the larch fruit and the larch berries were used um, medicinally 
and how now to this day we can still chew the the sap of the larch um, which was connected to this wedding between the fairy and the knights and that it like helps keep us healthy during the winter so it'd just be like one-off things like that while we were hiking or it'd be these sort of more elaborate um, fairy stories that would be told in the evening after dinner or um, as a bedtime story now how have those memories and experiences shaped your role as a dad <laughs> so very much and i'm i'm so grateful and lucky that my kid loves stories and they you know now they're coming up with their own um but we would talk about things like um watching the leaves of a tree turn silver and how that's really a sign that there's sort of a wind spirit moving through the air from the earliest time that my kid could remember um, or, or understand those words coming from me. So I've always tried to actively and perhaps more actively than my family did when I was growing up, actively remind them that there are these unseen presences flowing through life um, flowing through the trees, flowing through our garden, and also through their life as a kid, right? Um, all the time. And that they can relate with them and they can speak with them. And that there also are these sort of more dangerous or mischievous things that can happen that we should be aware of. And right now it's all very much in the context of sort of metaphor and story in its own right. Um, my kid's 12. But what I'm starting to see is that they're beginning to transition from seeing the fairy tale simply as a story to also seeing that there might be some analogy to the real world or to experiences that they're having and so they'll come back and i can't think of an example right now but they'll come back and talk about how something is happening and and it reminds them of a particular story for instance um, and to me that's gold right because that really reflects my experience it's just that they're having it 10 years earlier and i feel really good about that i guess some of those fairy books are so beautifully illustrated and informative. I can remember my daughter's just a bit younger than your child, and I can remember us actually using some of her fairy books as as plant identification books here on the farm. We'd walk around and a flower would come up and we're like, oh, I've seen that. And she'd go grab one of our fairy books and sure enough, it would be in there. You know, there's this author named Elsa Besco, whose books we really, really love. And in terms of botanical illustration accuracy, she is incredible. Um, really just beautiful. And, you know, I don't even, yeah, I keep it really close, the Flowers Festival. And like, this is basically the story of a Midsummer Night's Party and the beautiful flowers of the garden led by Queen Rose are, you know, having their sumptuous ball and at the garden gate, led by old Mrs. Nettle, who like has red eyes, a swollen nose, and it's all covered <laughs> in like tattered clothes. All the weeds want to come in. And there's the burdock boys, the thistle soldiers. <laughs> and anyway, and finally, the end of the story is that the garden gate opens and they let all the weeds in and they have a grand old party and everything is illustrated so incredibly well. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you for that. So Vermont is where you ended up settling, and that to me seems like a good compromise between Kansas City and Italy as far as geography is concerned. And 
there I would I would hazard a guess that there's a lot of similarities in the traditions as what you would have experienced in Italy as far as the connection to the land and the foraging and and the plants etc is that accurate it is um I want to start out by saying that you know where I'm sitting now is Abenaki land and it's a place that was called the Donlands and it's been inhabited by humans for thousands of years and so the way the land feels now is definitely not the way the land has existed um, in pre-colonial times for sure so the impact of colonization has turned vermont more into my memory of the alps um, than certainly would have been before or than for example the rockies are now the Rockies are amazing mountains and the power and spirit that are there and the hikes that you can take and the, the vibrancy of the natural ecosystems there blow me away, but they're almost too incredibly rich with the power of nature for me to feel cozy, if you know what I mean. The Alps having been trod on by humans like almost every square inch for thousands and thousands of years have a lot more, I don't know, memory of human experience, but I do see a sort of juvenile version of that in Vermont. And I think that's partly why, partly why I was attracted to this space, you know, um, and, and maybe is a little bit taught of what you were getting at and kind of what I agree with. 80 years ago, Vermont was totally deforested. They had pretty much cut everything down um, in order to support grazing, um, flocks of sheep and dairy industry cows. Certainly now it's the opposite. It's like 80, 90% forested, um, but it still retains very much a working landscape where humans are working with animals and plants um, in relatively small parcels of land, partly because of the constraints of the geography. We can't have huge sections like we can in the Midwest for growing grain, for instance. And also just because of timing, um, Vermont was a little bit of a, I won't say a backwater, but not as um, rapid in its adoption of things, even like electricity and indoor plumbing compared to some other parts of um, this country. And so timing wise, people are realizing now before everything got turned into large scale industrial ag or worse yet, um, you know, heavy industry here in Vermont that it's important to preserve this patchwork of decentralized small-scale family farms and the working landscape that they support. And to me, this feels really familiar and feels very similar to the working landscape and the patchwork of family farms that to this day exist in the Alps, you know, with folks taking their cattle up above the tree line to the Mazi during um, the long days of summer and then bringing them down to the valley and hunkering down literally in the same house with their animals, sleeping side by side with them over the course of the winter. Um, this still happens to this day in a lot of places in the Alps. Now, while the dairy farmers in Vermont aren't sleeping with their cattle, um, they're still incredibly grounded folks who truly understand the rhythm of life and of nature here. And I've really appreciated that. Um, the hunting community and the farming community in Vermont um, has holds a, I think, a deep wisdom um, that I do feel some affinity and resonance to as someone who grew up in Europe. But I want us to remember that even that is 
entirely a product of, of sort of this not pleasant colonial history. Um, and Vermont is not immune to that. Although um, we are working on trying our best to make amends with folks from um, the Abenaki community here who have stewarded this land for thousands of years. Well, I want to cozy up to the work that you're doing in Vermont and learn all about the the way you're integrating plants into your lifestyle and teaching others. But before I do that, you mentioned earlier Tanzania, and I just want to dip in there for a second to find out your experience there. Yeah, so I was incredibly lucky to be able to go with my whole family, with my wife and our kid, to Tanzania for six years kind of straight. Last year, we weren't able to go um, for reasons related to the pandemic. Um, but we worked in and around a rural hospital um, on the really the edge of the Serengeti. Um, Tanzania is blessed with a range of different biomes and ecosystems, all the way from coastland and an island like Zanzibar to basically high elevation plain, which is the Serengeti, um, which is like at 7,500 feet. And in between there, you have um, jungle, you have beautiful deep lakes, um, all sorts of environments. But the Serengeti is an incredible place. And even though I'd never been there before, when I first arrived, and, and, and by arriving, you're driving through grass, and grass that is maybe a few inches tall, with some clumps that are a little taller here and there. There's no road. You kind of know the heading, but it's this endless grass sea, and you're making your way towards those mountains that you might get to in like three or four hours. And so experiencing this, for me, it was like this nine-hour overland drive across middle of nowhere Africa, both felt really familiar, like I felt held by this environment, but I also felt like totally vulnerable and grossly unprepared, which of course I was. Um, nevertheless, we got to this rural hospital where my wife, um, I think, did a lot of really important work on um, particularly cervical cancer screening in a low-resource environment. As a gynecologist, um, that's her field of expertise in part. And in these rural hospital settings that service primarily a Maasai population, um, the Maasai are, are um, really hunters and nomadic herders um, who've you know, lived from Kenya through Western Tanzania and even parts further south um, from the sort of um, southern part of the, or the upper part of the Nile for over 1500 years. And these folks, when they come in, getting a pap smear is grossly impractical um, to check to see if they have any issues with dysplastic cells on their cervix. It's impractical because you need a pathologist and pathologists are few and far between. And you need to take time to check out the pap smear, look at it under a microscope and analyze the cells. By the time you've figured out that there may be a cervical cancer, that person is gone and finding them again is very, very difficult. So my wife helped pioneer a, a um, screen and treat system that used a um, system of visualizing the cervix by swabbing it with acetic acid to identify pre-dysplastic or dysplastic lesions on the cervix, and then a quick freeze with a cryotherapy tip that used liquid CO2, um, which is accessible resource, um, a sustainable resource there to sort of freeze off that dysplastic layer. The person is done. You can see them again next year if you want, but 
considering the rates of cervical cancer in Tanzania, especially, which is one of the highest of the world, um, this treatment and training the hospital staff on using this treatment um, ultimately has great public health implications. For me as an herbalist, I was able to bring um, a couple of colleagues along and um, we would work uh, on two main fronts. One is ethnobotanical research um, done with informed consent and following um, World International Property Organization protocols, WIPO protocols. And then the other was um, working in the hospital in two major areas. One is the um, what was called the minor surgical theater. And this was um, any types of wounds or surgical procedures, mostly wounds, that didn't require the sort of full sterile um, operating room, but where you could quickly sedate someone with ketamine and um, you know, perform the procedures you needed. So we did a ton of wound care and we um, helped the hospital transition from things like bleach and antibiotic ointment to herbal irrigation. Um, we used a range of plants from Lantana camara, which is an invasive, um, to Lipia citriodora, that is a native plant there to make these aromatic, slightly astringent, excellent vulnerary solutions with a little bit of salt for irrigation, right? And then um, rather than using antibiotic ointment or gentamicin ointment, which is very expensive and needs to be imported, local honey from Maasai beekeepers who make this incredible, slightly liquidy, slightly sour honey. Oh, it's so good. And of course, honey, incredible antiseptic agent, um, incredible bactericide, and also really good at stimulating granulation tissue and the healing of wounds. So we worked in that context using herbal support in the minor theater for um, wound care. And then we could round with um, physicians every day on these wards that they had. They had the male ward, the female ward, and the pediatric ward. They also had an antepartum and a labor and delivery ward, but we didn't really work with those folks at all. So the day was divided between um, one herbalist who would help support wound care, one herbalist who would round with the physician and sort of get case studies, and the third herbalist who would range around with um, traditional healing healer folks like Sangao um, or my friend Nicholas um, and gather plants and learn about plants. So we didn't really bring anything with us. We focused entirely on um, the local Materia Medica and then would come up with supportive protocols like juiced nettle leaves. They have these amazing nettles there, Todd, that are like 15 feet tall and have spines in them like two inches long. <laughs> anyway, really incredible nettles. We'd pick them with these leather gloves. The Maasai kids would look at us like we were crazy, <laughs> right? They call the plant washa washa, which means itchy, 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 right? And, and we're like, we're making juice. You want to drink it? And they thought we were nuts. But anyway, we'd bring those juices in, particularly for people who had lost a lot of blood. A typical story would be a mom gave birth, um, hemorrhaged, waited around for a couple of days. No one really supported her. Um, the bleeding didn't stop. So she'd hike, you know, four or five hours into the hospital, coming in with a hemoglobin of five, ridiculous. Normally we'd like a hemoglobin to be, you know, 12. Um, they get transfusions, but sometimes the blood wasn't available. And so we would bring in things like lots of metal juice just to provide support in a very nutritive way. We do a lot of ginger compresses to support pain and inflammation in the body externally. Um, so not really powerful herbs. Again, going back to nutritive tonic approaches and topical things um, that are very safe and that wouldn't interact with the medications, right? 
ultimately the product of that work with the physicians was a um, trilingual guide to the ethnobotany of the local community that hospital staff could use to talk to folks about what kind of plants or what they called um, traditional herbs they were using at home. There was this sort of very diffident attitude from the hospital staff around the quote traditional herbs that people would use. The general thinking was, hey, they're just poisoning themselves. They don't know what they're doing. Um, and that made people who came into the hospital very reluctant to talk to docs about what kind of herbs they were taking, which unfortunately, you know, could certainly lead to things like herb drug interactions, depending on what the pathology was. So the trilingual guide had Latin binomial, Swahili name of the plant, and English name of the plant. And we might even call it quadrilingual because when we could, we would put the Maasai name of the plant in there as well. Um, so folks could sort of talk about what people were taking at home. And using this guide, physicians would know about the biochemistry that was connected to the plants they were using at home and be able to make an informed calculation about any potential herb drug interactions that might've occurred. So I got to learn a lot about the native flora of the Serengeti. I got to work with some incredible folks um, and meet some really amazing people. While um, my wife was doing work on women's health and our kid was going to school in a place where she, her, their first response upon arriving was like, whoa, there's nobody here who looks like me, which I think was really instructive in its own right. That is so cool. What an amazing experience. I hope you get to return there and continue the work that you're doing. And I love how, I love the openness to the integration of medicines. We have a global outreach program through our college where students can complete clinical training in clinics around the world. And the very first one we set up was in Tanzania. Oh. And the second year of the college, I ended up chaperoning a couple students there. And we were working in a small private clinic in Zanzibar, but I very quickly became aware that there was an acupuncture ward in the hospital in Stonetown called Nazi mm -hmm. Moja Hospital. So we went there, we ended up establishing a relationship with the, the doctor who was doing acupuncture and bringing in Chinese acupuncturists to, to help run the ward. And we ended up establishing a, an outreach program with them too, where our students could go there and complete some of their training. But to have a hospital setting that is open to the plant medicine that you brought into it and, and the way that you introduced the local medicine solutions, or in this case, in Nazi Moja, to be open to having acupuncture and other forms of medicine, I think it's, it's incredible. We have a lot to learn from that sort of mindset of openness. I agree, and, and it probably could serve as the basis for a model, not just in terms of global outreach, but also in terms of outreach to underserved areas in this country um, or in yeah. this part of the world too. But it's really neat to hear. Um, Stonetown is an incredible place. You know, we spent a little bit of time there and I, I really enjoyed it. Definitely a big contrast from the high elevation plains and in, in the heart there of the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got to, we got to visit a Maasai medicine clinic. Mm somewhere outside of Arusha as we yeah. were heading towards the Serengeti. And it was absolutely fascinating. So cool. Huh? Why do you think, or do you know why the rates of cervical cancer are so high there? 
I think it's the lack of an adequate screening program. I think cervical cancer rates would be very high in, in this part of the world too, were it not for our incredible um, cervical cancer screening program. And the gold standard, which is the pap smear, like I was saying earlier, is, is really impractical for a rural setting where villages are few and far between and often people couldn't be bothered, you know, going somewhere. Um, the other thing about cervical cancer specifically, especially if you compare it to, oh, I mean, I don't know, um, even something like breast cancer or colon cancer, certainly things like squamous cell carcinomas on the skin is that it, it by the time symptoms are, are even slightly noticeable, usually there's been invasion and metastasis already. So it's a little more silent. Um, and, and so when people present, they present in a pretty advanced place, um, which usually leads to um, death or, or substantial morbidity pretty quickly. I think that, you know, I'd, I'd have to talk to my wife a little more about specifically why Tanzania and Malawi have these highest rates of cervical cancer in the world. But my guess is that, um, well, my, my educated guess is that the screening programs are inadequate and that when they do exist, often folks are lost to follow up. And because of the asymptomatic nature of something like cervical dysplasia um, or even early stage cervical cancer, it's, uh, you know, you don't see folks until their um, malignancy is so far advanced as to be life-threatening. Okay. I would love to see that guide that you wrote the herb guide oh, uh, that you help to collaborate there. on. That sounds yep. amazing. And using that as a springboard, can you talk about your better known book, The Wild Medicine Solution? Yeah. Um, I felt inspired to write this book partly because of this long-term desire to help people understand how amazing and beautiful herbal medicine is, especially if they haven't been exposed to it at all um, to begin with. So the book tries to make things as simple as possible without getting too simple. And from a tonic perspective, I started asking myself, well, you know, the perennial question that folks always ask herbalists is like, what's your favorite herb? And, you know, we joke about how it's like asking what your favorite child is. And, you know, we can't really pick that. Um, but rather than talking about it this way, I thought, well, what, what are maybe my top two or three favorite herbs that everyone should know about? And then because I'm so interested in, in sort of biochemistry and, and phytopharmacology and pharmacognosy, what I found a lot of the times, both when you're trying to find an alternative to say an endangered plant, or when you're working in Tanzania where there is no golden seal, but you taste a plant and you can you know there's berberine alkaloids in there by how it tastes, is that there's broad crossover, I think, between plants because of sort of a shared repertoire of chemistry and a shared um, or at least overlapping quality of their actions in the human body. So rather than what are my three favorite plants or four favorite plants, I said, well, can we write about um, what might be three or four important classes of plants? and define why they're important and introduce people to them. These are plants that they maybe could use um, on a daily basis that are generally pretty safe to use and that impact some key 
areas where the human homeodynamic balance sometimes gets thrown off. And so those three sort of classes of plants um, were, first of all, bitter plants, um, plants that literally taste bitter, that have been used for digestive health um, for generations. Aromatic plants, plants that, you know, um, usually have trichomes that store volatile compounds that when they're broken, release those aromas into the air, like peppermint or lemon balm. And lastly, tonic plants. And, you know, had I really thought about it a little more, I would have divided those tonic plants as I did in the book into the sweet tonic plants like oatmeal and mushrooms rich in beta-glucans and um, roots like ginseng root. And then the sour tonics, the bioflavonoid or polyphenol rich ones like blueberry and hawthorn berry, right? All of our deeply colored berries. But if we can develop a relationship with one bitter plant, one aromatic plant, and a sweet tonic and a sour tonic, a berry and an adaptogenic root in our lives, we very likely will have found an inroad to some of the more common issues that confront people on a daily basis. And from a public health perspective, some of the major challenges that as a species we're seeing on a population-wide level. So bitter plants don't only impact digestive function. Um, the thesis I outline in the book is that the lack of bitter plants is one of the root causes of our difficult relationship with carbohydrates and of things like the diabetes and obesity epidemic. So from an herbalist perspective, it's easy to say, hey, cut out sugar. But for many of my clients, that's really, really hard to do. What I found is that if I don't tell my clients to cut out sugar, but instead I give them a bottle of dandelion tincture and tell them whenever they feel the need for that sugar, have a little bit of that dandelion tincture first, they tend to consume less of that sugar. The sugar doesn't have as much of a dopaminergic discharge associated with it, that sort of reward and pleasure response. And their consumption of sugary treats after meals or carbohydrates in general starts to taper off. I don't think we're born hardwired to um, overconsume sugar. Part of the reason it is so easy for that to do is because of the food industry, of course. The other part is that we virtually lack bitterness in our diets. And there's been a lot more attention and interest to this in the last 10, 15 years, which I really, really appreciate. Major amazing bitter herbs all over the world, um, all across traditions from Ayurveda to traditional Chinese medicine, um, to the Aboriginal medicine that you see in New Zealand, all the way to like the bitter herbs that are thrown into the supu by Maasai um, folks twice a year. Sort of a cleansing ritual, believe it or not. It kind of blew my mind, right? That, you know, a lot of the same plants that Western herbalists will talk about as being liver tonic or quote unquote detoxifying, even though that's not my favorite term, are also used at seasonal transition rituals um, or the same flavors are at least by Maasai warriors. The next class is aromatic plants. And what these aromatic plants seem to be able to do, whether they're burned as incense or whether they're taken as tea or tincture, is reframe our internal tension state. Um, and there's a lot of biochemical reasons for this that I won't go into. Um, but even very simply, the experience of an aromatic plant brings us into the present moment by engaging our sense of smell. And being in the present moment is ridiculously useful for a lot of different reasons, especially in this multitasking, short attention span world in which we live. So aromatic plants can help us navigate um, diverse and sometimes discordant inputs with a lot more grace and a lot more equanimity. Um, and I think they do that in part 
because of their rebalancing of our internal level of tension. So that now external stressors aren't quite as big of a deal. They're no longer the last straw on the camel's back. And finally, of course, tonics, we could spend forever talking about um, sweet tonics, including the adaptogens like ginseng and the immunomodulants like astragalus, and then the sour tonics and their connection to cardiovascular health with their deeply pigmented berries like hawthorn berry and its attention to the heart or blueberries and bilberries like those bilberries I used to forage as a kid and their important protective effects on capillaries and on endothelial um, function in our blood vessels. And so you put this all together, you know, um, dandelion, uh, lemon balm, astragalus, and hawthorn. If we could connect folks to those four plants on a daily basis, we'd talk about getting inroads towards overeating and blood sugar dysregulation and digestive problems. Um, we'd get inroads into mood and mental health and tension. We get inroads into immunological balance and cancer prevention and of course, cardiovascular disease prevention. Um, those are big, important areas of public health. And my hypothesis is that they're not necessarily just byproducts of our modern tech. They may also be a reflection of the absence of our ancestors, our parents, the plants, those beings who created a chemical environment in which we evolved and now, that chemical environment being absent, we miss. Just like I missed foraging plants when I moved back to Kansas City, right? Our body misses these signals, which now we really know and understand are tweaking and regulating our metabolism, our gene expression, our immunologic function on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. And this is ultimately the real gift of herbalism, in my opinion, and, and what I try to sort of leave the reader with in Wild Medicine Solution. The ecology cares for us and we are like organs in a larger being. The chemistry that streams into our bodies from plants and mushrooms is like a regulatory hormone that helps maintain the homeodynamic balance of the ecology. In this case, it means it helps keep humans working with the ecology rather than just working inside our heads. And like I was saying earlier, I can't be an optimistic futurist without the plants having my back. We're going to lose ourselves and blow ourselves up with our technology if we don't walk forward hand in hand with our parents, the plants, our ancestors. That's what I try to leave the reader with in Wild Medicine Solution, including some like quick tips and tricks and practical ways to use these plants um, for your own personal health. Um, there's 13, well, 12 plants and one mushroom in the book that we also go into a little more detail um, so folks can get to know them, each representative of one of these classes, right? And another thing that hopefully the reader will leave with is um, sort of another light bulb moment for me that happened with a client to whom I gave a dandelion root tincture. Um, it was for heartburn. I was just saying like, when you have heartburn after a meal and you feel a little bit uh, sour and irritated, just try taking a dropper full of dandelion tincture and see how it goes. And for a couple of weeks, he came back and said, well, you know, it's helped my heartburn, but I have a question for you. The same dandelions as are in my yard? Which of course I said, yeah, it's dandelion. It's everywhere, you know, it's that same stuff. And his response, well, I better stop spraying Roundup on them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. And that's the sad truth that's happening all over the planet. 
Well, but minds change, right? When you see that a plant can help you and can impact your life in a positive way, maybe you don't want to spray, ra- spray Roundup on it anymore. Yeah. Well, the book is such a generous contribution to the herbal world. I know it's a favorite of so many of our students at Pacific Rim College. And thank you for putting that together. When you talk about bitters, it reminds me of a conversation I had with Joe Robinson many years ago, who's author of Eating on the Wild Side. Yeah. And she talks very much about bitters and how we've really lost connection to those. And we see bitters now as poisons. And we're always wary of eating anything that's too bitter. And she really makes a good case for why we need bitters. And it sounds like you've done the same as well. Yeah, I mean, Joe Robinson's point around phytonutrient density and, and, and our heirloom vegetables having a higher phytonutrient density than a lot of the bread supermarket varietals do um, is really good. And unfortunately, a lot of the phytonutrients like polyphenols taste kind of bitter. So that's why we've bred them out, right? Beyond that, we have truly bitter tasting stuff, some of which is poisonous, um, some of which is totally not, but tastes just as bad. Um, The ultimate analogy is that we do think that our bitter taste response evolved as part of a poison protection system, but um, many bitter tasting things aren't poisonous and engaging that poison protection system is actually really important, even though the bitter flavor might be challenging. So I think about it as running, right? like sprinting really hard until you can't breathe anymore and your muscles are burning, it's not pleasant, right? But yet, well, maybe not all of us, some of us choose to engage with that because it exposes our physiology to the fullest range of operating conditions that have existed and that are relevant from our evolutionary history. We can run this much. Our lungs can take in their full tidal volume. Most of the time, no one gets to experience it. It's a great privilege to do so. I'll tell you, taking a bitter tasting gentian root tincture is less taxing than doing sprints until you feel like you're going to die. But it's just as important. It's part of the same mm-hmm. thing, right? Challenge your um, perceptual ranges, challenge your range of experience, especially if it's part of something that is evolutionarily relevant. It's going to challenge yourself with cold temperatures, right? Take that cold water plunge. If your body can experience what it's been evolved to experience, then you will have at your fingertips a greater range of adaptive possibilities when the world throws crazy stuff your way. Yeah. Now, do you have a caveat for randomly tasting bitter herbs? Definitely. Yeah. And especially randomly tasting bitter things that you find in the wild without knowing what they are. So positive identification is always really important. Um, Even when you have positive identification of a non-toxic plant like gentian, taking large quantities like two teaspoonfuls of tincture can actually elicit that full-on poison protection response, which is nausea and vomiting, right? Nausea and vomiting at too high of a dose. But I've not seen that from dandelion tincture. Its bitterness is much milder um, when you compare that to something like gentian root. But the only other thing I'll say about, about bitterness is that Um, A lot of times, and this is most well articulated in traditional Chinese medicine, it makes sense to put something warming or aromatic with the bitter. Like that's why you see ginger so often paired with bitter herbs, Um, especially if they're being taken long term, just pure bitter unopposed doesn't seem to be really good for our digestion. Kind of gets things to stagnate a little too much. Mm -hmm. 
Can you tell me a bit about the process of writing that book and researching it? Thanks for that question. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in process. I tend to think of processes as having consciousness. In fact, I think of consciousness as a process. So in that sense, the book itself has its own consciousness and sort of long story short, that's how I felt writing it. And I don't think this is a, an experience that is foreign to a lot of people who have created things like books or works of art. Um, it almost feels like it has a mind of its own and it's writing itself. I would say that I was very inspired by the initial idea, both of trying to summarize things in a simple way, and also this idea of um, plants and mushrooms as providing chemistry that interlinks us with the ecology and allows us to become fully communing, active, engaged, functional parts of the ecology around us. So I was very inspired and driven by that idea. And I tried to see it through that lens. But of course, being a big enthusiast of mythology, fairy tale, and metaphor, I also tried to couch the, what we might call physiologic or medicinal understandings of the book in story and in fairy tale too. So the process was trying to find compelling historical or mythological threads that illustrated an important archetype. For example, in the case of bitters um, being a sort of wake up and engage and you may need to process some poison. Um, the story of Mithridates, the poison king was perfect and how he basically created bitters for himself as an antidote to poison and took it every day. But ironically, when he needed to poison himself in the end, he was unable to because of all of his antidote taking throughout all of his life. And historically trying to research what was in that formula, it's, it's a bitters formula. It has a few aromatic plants, it has some resins in it, and some coating demulcents in it, and it has important bitter herbs that improve liver function and assist in detoxification. So anyway, and then the, the aromatic stories around incense in particular, and around religious rituals that use the power of scent and aroma to trigger our memories, it's very evocative. And so that served as sort of a foundational story for me there. And then the story of um, sort of a great Irish traditional story of Armed and how she discovered the healing herbs, which I'll just, I commend your listeners to check out that story one way or another. Um, Armed and the healing herbs is amazing. Her ability and the way she came to that ability of being able to speak to the plants and, and know what they could do for us as humans came from this incredibly traumatic event around her brother and her father and um, literally had a technological silver hand put next to sort of deep nature magic of restoring a true hand as sort of the, the analogy or the myth, which to me was just perfect when we think about technological disease fighting approaches versus nurturing, gardening, organic support approaches, um, and how important I think the latter ultimately is and how well herbal medicine embodies the, the knowledge associated with that. So finding the stories was the most important part for me and helped me anchor then the text. And then I wanted to provide 
uh, very traditional understanding of where the very old tradition of herbal medicine thought bitter plants, aromatic plants, and tonic plants fit into their cosmology. And then the modern scientific approach, the pharmacological and clinical research perspective. And that whole part was grounded in something I've been studying for a long time, which is basically systems and network theory, the analysis of processes and systems and um, how they're structured and organized, how they influence each other and themselves, how homeodynamism sort of relates inside a living system. And what a lot of systems-based analyses of the human physiology have discovered is that there's some really important areas of the body. There's some less important areas of the body. For example, you could lose one kidney, you'd be okay, right? But you can't lose a heart. Um, so when looking at these areas, our sort of digestive and, and hepatic metabolism is one really big important hub. Certainly our nervous system is another. Our immunologic system is a third. And our DNA and gene expression, even though it can't be localized, um, it's a distributed process across every cell is another really important part of how that system and that network works. And so we looked at how in the book, plants impact those hub areas, right? Um, because bitter plants don't just improve saliva production, digestive enzyme production, they also affect hepatic metabolism. And really from the moment it enters your mouth to the moment the material enters your bloodstream after passing through the liver's portal circulation, these bitter constituents impact it every step of the way, which is fascinating, right? And you see the same thing with aromatic volatile constituents, you see the same thing with polysaccharides and saponins in the context of immunologic function, and with bioflavonoids and other polyphenols like curcuminoids in the context of gene expression, um, which we tend to see most often in cardiovascular function, but they're affecting gene expression in neuronal tissue, in um, cardiovascular system and, and beyond. So that's how that part was structured. So then I went looking for all of the pieces of evidence that showed how these botanical constituents um, impacted these key physiologic hubs and therefore by extension had profound consequences across the whole physiology. There's a lot of clinical research, but there's also some well-defined pharmacological mechanisms of action that we could point to. And when you start to see the parallels between mechanisms of action, traditional use patterns and indications that are just encoded in, in, in traditional wisdom, right? And then the analogy of the fairy tale that sort of opens the chapter, I felt comfortable kind of like tying the whole thing together that way. And, um, and that essentially was the process. I picked three, sometimes four herbs that might illustrate that particular bitter aromatic or tonic action most effectively and went into detail with some recipes, some fairy tales, some stories around those plants um, and how to prepare and use them in a practical way, just as sort of a spring off board for folks um, who might wanna try this, which I'll just say, we can talk about systems theory, we can talk about fairy tales, we can talk about consciousness science and how pervasive consciousness is throughout the universe and how um, our own process of self-reflection might overlap with plants' processes of self-reflection. We can talk about this all day, but what is really important for me is that herbal medicine gives us a way to make this tangible and actually bring the physicality, the chemistry into our bodies and change our minds in real physical ways that aren't just intellectual, right? That somatic and experiencing part that herbalism provides, whether it's a walk in the woods, uh, an 
an amazing discovery around the corner when you're foraging, the feeling of love when you're nurturing a plant in the garden, or just the, the enjoyment and vitality that comes when you drink tea. All of this physicality is so, so crucial to me, um, even though I, I get really excited about the heady intellectual stuff too. Um, we have to ground it in the soma. Um, we are physical beings as much as we are beings of light and spirit. And unless we nurture both sides, again, like with the technology, we're just gonna get lost. And um, I don't think the outcome will be as good. Speaking of consciousness, let's speak of consciousness. <laughs> I know it's something in reading your bio, I know it's something that was worth mentioning to you in your bio, your interest in it, your passion for it. Can you talk a bit about how that works for you, how that unfolds and, and any lessons maybe that you have? Oh, oh boy. Um, well, and if that, if that's too much, we can save it for another podcast too. <laughs> it's definitely an incredibly complicated field. And there's all sorts of things like definitions, right? That when you have a body of knowledge, like consciousness studies, um, it's important to, to talk about those things and get your definitions and your, your context and set the stage properly. But that would take too long. So, you know, in brief, what was compelling to me, and, and I think this is true of a lot of folks who, who are drawn to these types of ideas, is that I had a really series of really powerful, I would say, trans-conscious experiences that were catalyzed by plants. And I don't mean taking mind-altering plants, although that certainly is one way you can do it. I mean a feeling that certainly can happen between humans, maybe in a more relatable way, if you can call it love, for example, or like a sort of connection that comes from deep passion. But there's also this overlapping and bleeding out of my conscious experience and a plant's conscious experience that I have felt numerous times when walking in the woods or when working in the garden. And we tend to think that our conscious experience is contained inside of us as the subject of the experience. And philosophers and, and neurologists and, and those who study consciousness deeply are not 100% of the same mind on this, although most people would tell you that the what they call the exclusion axiom or this idea that my conscious experience is permanently and completely insulated from yours, right, is often one of the tenets um, of this. And I'm just here to maybe say to your listeners or to folks who are thinking about this, what if it's not all or nothing? What if our consciousness can bleed or maybe have fuzzy edges? with other beings in our environment. That's my premise. I believe this to be true. I believe I've experienced it multiple times in multiple different ways. And since writing Wild Medicine Solution, which hints at this, right, which hints at the fact that we are part of a broader consciousness, even if you wanna just call it your family or your community or your local ecology, we are embedded in a, a being that is bigger than us, right? And it's really just mammal chauvinism that leads us to think that we're the only ones with consciousness, first of all. But realizing that we're embedded and that the ecology might be pulling our strings using this chemistry that's flowing through us from plants and mushrooms was definitely a, a paradigm shifting moment for me. And so for the last decade, 
I've tried to catalog information that helps me understand why it might be true that my consciousness is not firmly delineated and that it can overlap with other beings. This is grounded in, in, a, in a lot of different, um, I would say interdisciplinary studies, um, ranging from cosmology, um, philosophy and philosophical studies of consciousness, um, including particularly folks who explore panpsychism, this idea that consciousness is, is widespread and sort of baked in before matter and energy and even time in some cases, um, all the way to biology and biological systems, systems theory, um, and particularly the study of networks that are self-referential. And so there's these features that consciousness shares, including both feedback and feed forward processes. And there's these nesting processes that occur inside our shared world, right? Where processes are nested inside of each other, like our cells inside of us and us inside of a community, for instance. And being able to explore all of this um, has led me to the firm place of belief that our consciousnesses are not necessarily totally isolated. And that if this is the case, there's this really interesting implication around causative power, which is using my consciousness to exert change in a way that is purposeful. Most people would call it will, right? And unfortunately, when you embrace the idea that our consciousness might not be fully contained, it comes part and parcel with the fact that your will might not be fully your own. And I actually think this is an important idea and one that I would like us to think about more. The thoughts that you have in your head may not be fully quote unquote yours. And I'm not talking about telepathy here necessarily. I'm not talking even about sort of subconscious associations that may be impacting our day-to-day -day thinking pattern. I'm saying that if you take a bunch of dandelion, you may think differently about Roundup. That seems intellectual, right? But if you drink a lot of aromatic tea, your ability to relate to other humans as well as to plants might shift and your decisions might change in a way that you're not fully aware of or conscious of. And that indeed, part of your decision-making process might be under the control of an organism that is larger than you are or smaller than you are. To illustrate this, think about the microbiome and what we've learned about the microbiome over the last 20 years in terms of its ability to impact our mood, our thought patterns, and what we would call our conscious self or our conscious will, right? So similarly, just as the will of our gut bugs is not entirely under their control because what we eat and what we do has a lot to say about what their life is gonna look like. Similarly, our will and our consciousness is not entirely under our control because what the gut bugs are up to certainly impacts that dramatically. And how much more so does the natural world impact us too? So for a range of different reasons that I think would take too long to explain, we can talk about homeodynamically regulating feedback processes that are nested within each other at multiple levels of biological awareness, creating this sort of universal consciousness field or the universal consciousness field being present even before these self-referential processes started going and evolving, right? There's this really interesting researcher at MIT by the name of Jeremy England um, who talks about 
dissipative structures. These are structures that you can feed energy to, like mechanical energy to them, um, and they will organize into more and more complex structures all by themselves, colloids in um, a liquid. And they don't do this because there's some master plan. They don't do this because the researcher is like pushing them around. They do this because these organized structures are better able to dissipate that energy more quickly essentially accomplishing the goals of the second law of thermodynamics more quickly. And th the, the thing that really sort of deeply engaged me on this journey was the realization that those processes that we think about as being destructive, right? Entropy, the weathering process, the process of taking things and grinding them down into homogeneity, which we know is what's happening in the universe. Many people say, well, there's this other force, this force of love, this force of life that stands in opposition to this force of entropy that's grinding everything down. But what we see over and over again is that life is an inevitable byproduct of the attempt of entropy to equalize the gradients that exist in the universe. A radiator releases heat better than a solid block of metal does. The more complex and folded a biological system is, the more self-referential it is, the more it can draw from the evolutionarily relevant ranges that it was been exposed to, the more effectively it can dissipate energy. Therefore, a living earth is better at taking in photons from the sun and dissipating them into heat than an inert ball of rock would be. Life is a consequence of the second law of thermodynamics, not something that stands in opposition to it. And so consciousness, if you think about it from a panpsychist perspective, from the very beginning, this awareness of capacity that the universe must have had if consciousness is baked in, immediately translated, you know, as they say, one begets two, two begets three, and three begets the 10,000 things. This process of ongoing evolving complexity that we sit in is renewing itself every day for the ultimate goal of taking the universe to this homogenous heat death. But as we make our way to that place over however long it's going to take, the structures are gonna get ever more evolved, ever more beautiful and ever more complex. And crucially, if we can attune ourselves to the self-referential homeodynamic processes that exist writ large beyond the ones that are happening inside our body, we will find that our actions and our will will flow more easily. Kind of like a writer when they're in their mental flow and everything is pouring out, or a runner when they get into their flow and it feels a little more effortless. That's happening, why? It's happening because the cardiovascular beat pattern, the quadricep and core muscle contraction pattern and the respiratory pattern are all synchronizing so that the heart delivers oxygenated blood at the moment when the muscle needs it for contraction. And all of this makes running just a little easier. It takes me about a mile or so for that to happen. But that same process happens throughout our life in everything we choose to do. So if we could open ourselves up to regulatory forces from the world outside us, which I contend are encoded in the chemistry that plants and mushrooms deliver to us on a daily basis if we choose to eat them. Then the idea is that we will flow with the will of the ecology or the will of the universe more closely. And as a result, our actions will be 
more effortless or there will be less effort involved in them. We'll expend less energy to do it and we'll accomplish the broader goals of energy dissipation more effectively. However, the caveat is your will and your actions may not end up being ultimately what you thought they were going to be at the very beginning from your human perspective. Things may change, they may flex. So uh, that, that's just a little bit of what I've been thinking a bit around consciousness. <laughs> and I, again, have to bring it back to the fact that this is good stuff to talk about, but let's put that plant in our mouth, right? Because it's even more important to engage with it. As Freya Matthews, who's a panpsychist philosopher from La Trobe University in Australia said, we have to remember the primacy of encounter over knowledge. It's more important to encounter life than it is to know it. Yeah. Oh, it's so rich. Thank you for all of that. That's wonderful. Do you have, outside of running and your connection with plants, do you have any sort of practice, spiritual practice or whatnot that reinforces your connection to consciousness or the universal consciousness? Well, I do think spiritual practice is important. I think that ceremony and ritual are important and it's largely because they build connection between things, lives. That can be a connection to an idea. It can be a connection to another person. It can be a connection to a place, to an object, whatever you want. When you go and you sing to it over and over again in ceremony, you're literally enchanting it and you are being enchanted by it. Um, and, and when you do this, this is how we link consciousnesses, right? Um, by just, it, it's not magic and it takes work and it takes repeated work. It takes treading those paths over and over again. So that's spiritual practice for me, but it doesn't have to be always for the same icon or idea or archetype. It's this idea of engagement. And I choose to engage in those two main areas. One is with my own internal processes through the process of physical exertion and running and with external the world around me in terms of putting botanical and fungal material and bacterial material into my body, you know, once I know that it's safe, in an ongoing way. That to me is my spiritual practice, but I structure it in such a way, right, that when I wake up in the morning, plant connection in the form of tea, intellectual connection in the form of reading or writing or drawing or thinking about ideas, then physical activity, and then a little more thinking about ideas, because often that stimulates that. I would say I get to have about an hour to two hours every morning where I just get to do that. It requires me getting up at five in the morning, but I found it totally worth it. It provides me insights to my day, again, like, like the wild medicine solution, that, that aren't entirely my own. They have this like numinous quality to them that at this point I've come to recognize is, is coming from the outside, is maybe part of not just my consciousness. And I choose to provide a lot of time every day to that. And another thing that is really, really important and that I encourage your listeners to think about is that you'll have experiences throughout the day, really dumb things sometimes like, hey, wait a sec, take a left here, or hold on a sec, you should just walk outside right now. I would encourage you to at least once or twice when you have that strange feeling, as dumb as it might seem, to just do it 
and clearly in some cases it will not be practical. But if you can allow that to happen once or twice a day, every day, you will find that those will come more frequently and that you'll start to really feel um, that in some cases they provide really valuable turns and directions in your day that are sources of synchronicity that you may never have thought could have even existed. So I guess that's the second part of my practice. There's sort of an intentional piece where I set aside time every morning or almost every morning. And then there's a responsive piece when I feel these urges in particularly when I feel drawn to a different place or a different part of the forest or a different part of the garden or a different part of the city, moving to that place and seeing what happens. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. And it very much reminds me of Dallas perspectives of following the intuition of the heart, which is also called spontaneity. It gets us out of our habits and you get that inkling that, oh, there's something there. I just need to go over there. And most of the time we're like, no, there's nothing there. I don't need to do that. I'm doing something here. But there's a potential that we're missing out on some great opportunities by ignoring that intuition, that heart's voice. Can you tell us a bit about Urban Moonshine? Urban Moonshine started as a tincture company. And tinctures are very simple ways to prepare medicinal plants. Um, you can prepare them when they're fresh or when they're dry. It basically consists of chopping them up and steeping them in alcohol of different strengths. This stabilizes them, extracts their chemistry, and prevents um, things like microbial degradation. So Urban Moonshine started with this idea of um, selling botanical extracts in this alcohol form. But pretty quickly, Jovial, the founder of the company, um, Jovial King, wanted to bring out this idea of bitters and particularly old school alcohol-based digestive bitters like Angostura bitters that are found in many grocery store shelves. Mm -hmm. Because at farmer's market one day, she was um, sort of talking to a customer and that customer said, what is all this stuff? Kind of, you know, thinking it was witchcraft or quote unquote snake oil or whatever it is you want to call it. And, you know, Jovi will explain that and what they were, what tinctures are, how you can use them. Um, and then the customer saw this bottle that said bitters on it. And they're like, wait, like what I put in my Manhattan? And so what we realized is that there is still this thin thread in the public consciousness, at least of American folks, where herbal medicine still hangs out. And that is in cocktail culture, believe it or not. And what we've seen in the last 15 years is that that has exploded dramatically and bartenders are using tinctures all across the board um, to make quote medicinal cocktails now. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about that, but anyway, I think it's cool to taste all sorts of different things. So then Urban Moonshine really um, reinvented itself as sort of a bitters company. And we started selling to um, bartenders as well as to folks who were health conscious and who wanted something for digestive support and liver support, which of course bitters do very well. Um, right around the same time, I was working on Wild Medicine Solution. And so we came up with this idea that it'd be really great to have some aromatic um, mood balancing liquid extracts in there too. And of course to have some tonics, some for the immune system, um, some for the cardiovascular system 
um, product, which we called chocolate love tonic, and it used cacao as the source of flavonoids and hawthorn berry tincture in it, for example. So our main goal was to take herbal medicine and particularly liquid tinctures, demystify them, make them taste good, and bring them as formulas into the American public in a way that was beautiful and relatable and sort of a little more modernly accessible. Um, not something where you had to do, you know, an apprenticeship in the woods or where you had to go back to the land um, or where, you know, herbal medicine was, this was back in 2007, 2008. Um, herbal medicine was definitely more well-known than when I was apprenticing with folks in the early 90s, but um, it still was not very well known in the mainstream. So we wanted to make it beautiful, accessible, easy, and relatable. Um, and I think we did okay with that. And especially with bitters, we were, I think, able to elevate the idea of the liquid herbal digestive bitters as a great daily habit for digestive support and get people to think about the bitter flavor a little more um, than they may have in the past. And of course, right, Todd, this is, this is how these things go. It's a broader consciousness than my own or urban moonshine. So folk like Joe Robinson were talking about the same thing at the same time. It's like this whole thing was happening um, in the early 2000s and onward. And Urban Moonshine was there um, at the right time and I think with the right ideas to be able to um, contribute to and receive the contribution of this stream of consciousness around herbal medicine, rewilding, and um, particularly the bitter flavor. And so we sold aromatic tinctures, bitter tinctures, and tonic tinctures um, for you know close to a decade. And um, uh, had some amazing customers and some amazing journeys and travels, met some really cool folks all around the country. Um, and we were all united, I think, by herbal medicine as a birthright and as something that we want to return to in order to move gracefully through the present and into the future. And it was a very different way of presenting herbal medicine, at least in my experience, than what I saw from other particularly larger, more industrial scale companies. And, and what do I mean by this? We traveled around a lot, speaking to folks at stores, um, speaking to like Whole Foods regional office and a range of different people in what we call the dietary supplement industry. And 201, most people would tell us, wow, you're not talking down to us. You're not giving us a list of bullet points on how to sell the product. You're really telling us that we're plugging into this sort of atavistic, long-term human spirit nurturing stream that is our birthright. And wow, I want some of that. And so as much as it was our mission to sell bitters, it was also our mission to make people excited about being a part of this stream of phytopharmacology that flows through our culture or that should flow through our culture more. And this idea that tonifying the human and as much as putting good compost and building good soil for a garden is more important than having the right pesticides and herbicides to spray on your plants when there's a problem. And this idea really clicked with people. And I'm really grateful to have been a part of that, at least in our small chunk that was Urban Moonshine. Um, in 2017, Urban Moonshine was purchased by a tea company called Traditional Medicinals. So now those brands live together. And I'm working um, on Urban Moonshine and also with Traditional Medicinals um, in all things herbal from tea formulation to research and development. 
Okay, I didn't know that. And that reminds me of a conversation I had with Ann Armbrecht, and she spoke very highly of traditional medicinals. So, I'm definitely not going to disagree with Ann. That's great. And what is the education side of Urban Moonshine? Well, um, you know, after growing plants for four or five years, and I started my clinical practice in 2000, um, with the Sage Mountain Free Herbal Clinic, um, Rosemary Gladstar, Rebecca White, um, and others there in central Vermont. I started working with apprentices in 2003, 2004 in my own garden. And I really enjoyed this. I, I enjoyed it both from my ability to speak about ideas that I was having with others, and also in terms of being able to learn about what other people were doing and what their perspectives were on herbal medicine. We worked together, we definitely made extracts. Um, Jovial and Colleen, who were sort of founding members of Urban Moonshine, were in my first apprenticeship class. And so it sort of helped me find my place in the community of herbalists in central Vermont. About four years later in 2007, not only was Urban Moonshine started, but I also, with two colleagues, Larkin Bunce and Betsy Bancroft, started the Vermont Center for Integrative Herbalism, which you know is going strong now, like 15, 14 years later. Um, it's a three-year clinical herbal training program. So you know it's a supervised um, clinical practicum at the end, and it's all of the sort of pedagogical and theoretical stuff um, beforehand with a lot of experiential herbal knowledge in sort of the first and second years. With Urban Moonshine, um, we recognized pretty quickly that the education work that I'd been doing in the context of the school, also in terms of my apprenticeship, was going to be a really crucial way of how we were going to get people to take these crazy herbs, and especially in alcohol form, um, something that seems really abstruse and foreign to a lot of folks, um, maybe even dangerous. So right from the get-go, education was an important part of Urban Moonshine, um, partly because I was involved, and to me, education is is a crucial part of the way we have to move through the world um, in terms of it being a primary way that humans enchant each other and that we can overlap consciousnesses is through teaching and learning from each other. So that um, became a part of Urban Moonshine in a couple of ways. We started with our internal education program. We wanted everyone to be able to understand like how amazing medicinal plants are and how they can apply in your life. Um, for everyone who worked there. Um, then we also, like I was saying a second ago, got into sort of long-term personal education relationships with our retail partners, um, folks who were selling Urban Moonshine products. And our goal the whole time was not, we wanna teach you how to sell Urban Moonshine. Our goal was, we wanna teach you how to become herbalists. Because if you have an herbalist in your store, they're going to recognize the value of these formulas. They're going to recognize the importance of bitter tonification. And, and you know, whether it's an Urban Moonshine product that that person buys, or whether it's a tea blend or a product from another company, I don't care. Our attitude was always, if more people learn about herbal medicine, the rising tide lifts all the boats, right? And in fact, I think that's what ended up happening. But beyond that, um, it became really important for us to not just work with our retail partners, but to try as best we could to advance herbal knowledge in the general public as well. And while I felt really good about um, how that mission was panning out with my colleagues Larkin and Betsy at the Vermont Center for Integrative Herbalism, you know, we were training really competent, compassionate, um, just ecologically grounded herbalists. And they were going back to their communities across the country. And you know, you know 
all of this from your work at Pacific Rim and, and what your education programs offer to the world in terms of your graduates' incredible ability, right? But at the same time, we wanted to make sort of a very simple entry level, safe and fun approach to herbs um, available for folks in the general public. And so we started first with our retail partners, but then we now have moved it to anyone who's interested. Um, there's a sort of very basic low tech, low res um, series of 18 simple lessons on herbal medicine, which we call Urban Moonshine Herb School. It's definitely available to the general public. Um, you get to, you know, about an hour per lesson is me talking on different topics, um, often uh, in the woods with my phone's poor quality camera. Um, <laughs> but still, you know, if you can get past that a little bit, um, there's some good stuff in there along with supportive reading material and um, other things. But we wanted to make that available free of charge because, again, in the spirit of the sort of plant's generosity, and with the idea that the more people learn about herbal medicine, the better it's going to be for all of us, including for you know a company like Urban Moonshine or Traditional Medicinals, um, we we chose to share that freely, and I think that that's been a sort of an ongoing driving thing for me. Whether it's trying to create the Sage Mountain Free Herbal Clinic back in 2000 for folks who don't have insurance, don't have you know. 40 to 200 bucks an hour for a consultation, don't have the money to pay for um, medicinal herbal products that no insurance covers. Like that's why we set up that free clinic back in 2000. And that's why we donated our medicines there and donated our time. Um, so the idea of accessibility, especially of education around plants has been sort of a very driving, motivating thing for me for a long time. Um, the ultimate reason though is quote, self-interested again, with this remembering that self is a little bit transpersonal, but if we can all learn about plants and all have the experience of being connected to the ecology around us via another living being with, with which we can literally commune by taking it inside of our bodies and having it affect these profoundly important processes like gene expression inside of us, if that becomes part of the popular culture the way it was for my dad growing up in Italy, right? I think that this will have profound implications for everything from how health and disease are addressed in this culture, what chronic disease looks like in this culture, and crucially, what our relationship to things like oil spills or climate change are as a human species. Part of the reason we can say, oh, geez, we just burst a pipeline in the Gulf of Mexico and we're spilling out tens of thousands of gallons every day and say, oh, well, it's a cost of doing business is because of this insidious idea that somehow humans have become disconnected or are disconnected from nature. And I don't think anything could be further from the truth. We are nature, no matter what, no matter what. And to somehow think we've been abstracted from it lets us off the hook in this way that can have consequences like not caring at all what happens to an ecological system. But when we put that ecological system into our bodies, whether it's through intellectual understandings like the guy with the dandelion root and the roundup, or whether it's through non-intellectual resonance that happens when plant chemistry and gene expression resonate together in a living human, our attitude towards the ecology and towards the world will shift. Not because we're reconnecting, but because we're connecting more deeply and allowing ourselves to be influenced. 
I guess is what I'm saying. And there's this guy, um, Michael McCarthy, who wrote for a range of newspapers in England. He wrote this book called The Moth Snowstorm, which is really great. And it, the, the central image is when he was a kid, he remembers driving in hot summer nights through the Midlands. And there were so many insects in the air that it looked like a snowstorm in the headlights of his car. And how now our insect population has decreased so dramatically that no kid can ever see this. His whole point is, we can help people get convinced that it's important to address challenges like climate change by reminding them of the joy that the natural world brings when we get to experience it. I'd like to take that a step further, that it's not just about the experience of being in nature, but it's about the experience of nature being in us. And there's no better analogy and actual tangible physical reality of that that I have found um, than herbal medicine. So educating about that is crucially important, I think. Wow. Yes. Thank you. Give us more. <laughs> Where can people learn more about you, Guido, and what all these amazing things that you're doing? Um, I am not very good at making those resources accessible easily in one place for folks. Um, I do have a blog and web page that talks a little bit about some of these things, but I haven't updated it in two years. It's um, more even. It's called a radical. Um, radical uh, is spelled R-A-D-I-C-L-E, right? Like a small root. So aradical.blogspot.com is certainly a place where you can find some writings and um, learn more about kind of what I'm up to. I do have an occasional Twitter feed. Um, I have not posted since about November. I've really been hunkering down and spending time in, with my family and local community over the course of this last winter. Um, but that is herbalist, twitter.com slash herbalist. So it's probably my most, um, the place where I'm most active in the internet. Well, but, don't be apologetic for these things. It's good that you're spending your time doing other things such as connecting with your family. Yeah, thanks, son but through traditional medicinals as well. Okay. And if I can just ask one more question before we sign off, you spoke of your days in Kansas city when you kind of had this aha moment that you wanted to study and learn more about plants and you started speaking to plant people everywhere you went. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me, and hopefully this isn't as hard as what's your favorite plant question, but can you tell me about one of your most memorable mentors? Um, Yes, I, I basically didn't figure it out when I was in Kansas City. Um, I was studying in high school and learning a lot about chemistry and physics and biochem and getting really into it. Um, it. I had to go to my first year of college at Wesleyan University before that aha moment clicked, at which point um, Wesleyan is in Connecticut. So I was in New England. I was already, like you said earlier, kind of falling in love with New England's coziness and its somewhat European rhythms for better or for worse that felt familiar to me. So I stuck around there and, um, you know, before ranging down in places like Georgia and um, Apple, Southern Appalachia, um, I spent time in the Finger Lakes region of New York. And there in Ithaca and in the surrounding forests where I actually lived in the forest for a while um, I was able to connect with this herbalist seven song. And one of the things that 
sticks in my mind from working with him, particularly in the context of um, Rainbow Gatherings, a traveling band of nomads, which Seventh Song has assisted for many, many years by creating um, sort of improvised free clinics that use herbal therapeutics as a way to address all the stuff that comes up when you put 10,000 people in the forest. Um, the, I was impressed and my life was changed by the power that plants have to actually impact serious business when it comes up, like really bad infections, like gastrointestinal infections, like swollen abscesses that have, you know, lymphangitis associated with them, um, from spider bites that induce like partial limb paralysis, like really intense stuff. And being able to watch herbalists competently work in those areas that to me seemed like, whoa, we gotta get this person to an emergency room, um, took what was an interest and sort of a, an, an engagement that felt good and fun and spoke to my interest in biochemistry as well as mythology and fairy tale and took it to a whole other level. It was like, wow, this stuff is really powerful and can impact human beings in a really profound way. So I'm, I'm really grateful to Seven Song for that. Um, I certainly couldn't let this go by without mentioning Rosemary Gladstar, who settled in Vermont some years before I arrived there, um, but who has always served as sort of a, a nurturing force for myself included, um, for all herbalists who live in this part of the world and of course beyond. But getting to meet Rosemary Ann, hang out um, with her and, and see her work and being able to be brought into Sage Mountain, her educational facility and work with some of her apprentices um, early on was also really formative for me. And I think um, her mentorship around education technique and style and the importance of education was really formative for me. Um, I'd say Seven Song just blew my mind in terms of the power of plants to address situations, you know, that I thought would have been completely intractable. Oh, thank you for that. I've certainly heard of Seven Song. I'm not familiar with him in any detail. And of course, Rosemary Gladstar keeps coming up again and again by guests of this podcast, including Margie Flint and Jim McDonald. And I have the good fortune of interviewing her in a couple months. So I'm really looking forward awesome. to that. Well, if you get a yeah. chance to speak with Seven Song, I recommend it. I think you'd okay. really like. I really think you'd really like him too. All right. Well, thank you, Guido. My deepest gratitude for this two amazing hours of conversation with you. It's been so enriching. Thank you for that time and for all the time that you've committed to helping spread the knowledge of herbalism and connecting people to nature. And as you said, putting nature back inside of us. It's it's wonderful all that you've done. Thank you. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. And I hope one day to come visit y'all up there. Um, thank you for all the work you do as well. Thank you very much. And yes, we'd definitely love to have you. So let's stay in touch. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Guido Massey. For more about Guido, check out his blog at aradical.blogspot.com. That's A-R-A-D-I-C-L-E dot blogspot.com. And head to the Traditional Medicinals website at traditionalmedicinals.com. If you are interested in studying Western Herbal Medicine, the School of Western Herbal Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned programs, including world's only study options combining Western Herbal Medicine with acupuncture and holistic nutrition. Visit pacificrimcollege.com to learn more. 
Also, don't forget to check out our online education in herbal medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at pacificrimcollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture and Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificrimcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, challenge your ranges of perception and experiences to expand your adaptive possibilities.